following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. As we read in 1 Samuel 31 of the death of Saul and Jonathan, and then I'm going to read some parts of David's reaction to that event from 2 Samuel chapter 1. Please follow along in your Bible. 31 is a short chapter. 1 Samuel 31. Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and they struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malchishua, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised men come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died, and his three sons and his armor-bearer and all his men on the same day together. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled, and the Philistines came and lived in them. The next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers through the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. And they put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth and fastened his body to the wall of Beth Shean. And when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, the valiant men arose and went out at night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Beth Shean, and came to Jabesh and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted for seven days. Now, I really want to cover all of chapter 1, but I, time forbids me reading it all. I'll mention in my message how a man comes to David and tells a false story about Saul's death and is killed by David because of doing that. But let's go to verse 11. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them. And so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel because they had fallen by 
the sword. Then verse 17, and David lamented with his lamentation over Saul and Jonathan his son. And he said it should be taught to the people of Judah. And behold, it is written in the book of Jashar. He said, your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. And then the concluding part of this song or poem, verse 25, how the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan, lie slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. I read a Christian writer who used a pungent piece of wit to tell about his Aunt Frida. Aunt Frida was a woman years ago in her early 70s who seemed to have the purpose in life of attending funerals. Each morning, Aunt Frida sat down to carefully study all the obituaries in the newspaper of her medium-sized Midwestern city. If she found a notice for anyone who was even the slightest acquaintance, a member of her own church, whether she had met that person or not, a friend of a friend, a neighbor, four blocks distant, Frida would sit with her handkerchief and have a good cry over the loss and then set her plans to attend the funeral. And this writer said Aunt Frida almost every week attended at least two, often three, funerals a week. She became expert in the art of lamentation. Now, you would think perhaps there's something wrong with anyone who is so fully engaged as that in the practice of grieving and following the dead. But I would suggest to you that far from most people falling into this error, the greater problem in our society is many, many people who avoid excessively contact with death to such an extent that proper homage is not paid to lives that depart from our midst. And people want to rush others through grief. I've actually heard them say, oh, that widow is still grieving after two years. When is she going to get over it? And I have suggested she's not going to get over it in the way that that person is asking. Most of you know I wrote a book on the subject, What Happens After I Die, and I've had some bemused reactions from people who hear about the book. They oh, what's that book you wrote? Really? You wrote a book about death? Why, I couldn't even make myself dwell on that depressing subject long enough to read a couple chapters. I'm sorry, I probably won't be reading your book. I'm glad at least for those who are frank about it. David's heartfelt lament over the deaths of King Saul and Prince Jonathan found here. The event is in chapter 31 of 1 Samuel. The lamentation is in the first chapter of 2 Samuel. These things instruct us of how a healthy 
and godly soul prayerfully deals with great losses, both for a nation, the death of a king, and personally in the death of a great friend. David honored the gift of life that God had given Saul and Jonathan and the places they had had in the life of God's people. He exalted the gift of life because it came from God, and he exalted lives that were lived for God and for his honor. I think most of you would be surprised to sit down and really confront the fact that almost half of the Psalms are technically classified as laments. We seem to think that the Psalms are mostly, oh, Lord God, I praise you. You are very wonderful. You are very high. There certainly are Psalms that go that way, many of them. But there are many of them that start out, oh, Lord, why are you so far from my groaning? Why do I call out day after day and you do not answer? Often the psalmist is speaking out of a loss or a disappointment or a death, and he does not soft-pedal the reality, the grimness of what he faces. The contrast to our modern culture is absolutely stunning. We don't even know what lamentation is in America. The evening news reports horrible crimes by terrorists, murders, beheadings, things that shock us and stun us people being shot in the streets of our own neighboring towns. And then in the blink of an eye, you go from the newscast to an advertisement for cat food or replacement windows. That's our society. We have no patience to linger over death. We have no place for lament. Why? Possibly because life is cheap in the 21st century. Someone dies, you move on. It only counts as a 30-second soundbite at best on the news. When human life is understood as being God-given and Christ-redeemed, we discover how to confront death in a proper way, a dignified way, a God-honoring way, not just as a tragedy that has to send us into a a downward spiral of sadness, but a way that can honor life and honor the God who gives it and who takes it back. So I want you to explore with me in a little time here how we might consider the place that lament should and must have in our lives as people of faith. What place does it have in our prayers and in our worship? First of all, our text gives us, I only have two points today, so the first one's long, be patient. Our text looks here to a time of national lamentation. One of the ways I know I'm old is when I think back on events in my life and realize very, very earth-shattering, important things that have happened in my lifetime, and then I realize, well, I was 14 when it happened, and almost no one younger than me, much younger than me, can even remember. Friday afternoon, November 22nd, 1963, a day that changed our whole world. It changed America. I can tell you every place I was, everything that was said, every emotion that I felt, 
as the announcement came over our middle school loudspeaker from the principal that President Kennedy had been shot in the streets of Dallas. I can remember the gym teacher crying as he told us the radio had announced the president was dead. I can remember Jackie in her black veil and the phenomenon of the riderless horse with the boots backward. Never had seen anything like that before. Little John John saluting his father's casket carried on the gun caisson. Charles de Gaulle leading world leaders down Pennsylvania Avenue. Something told my 14-year-old mind that my country had drastically changed in a way that it would never be able to recover and it would never go back to where it was before that day of lamentation. Of course, we've experienced it again, 9-11 and other terrible events. Well, 1 Samuel 31 rings with a message from Scripture as the pronouncement is made about King Saul. The king is dead. Long live the king. Except there was no king immediately to step in. We'll see something about that in weeks to come. Philistine archers and cavalry had surrounded Saul on Mount Gilboa and three out of his five sons. He had five sons. We'll talk about the other two in a little bit. Other week to come. Jonathan, Abinadab, Malkishua, three of them fell within his sight. Seeing that, seeing the swarm of enemies coming, Saul, you read here, wanted his sword bearer to, armor bearer to kill him. He wouldn't do it. And Saul did it himself. And let's just dispatch with a couple sentences that idea that those who commit suicide are condemned to hell and can never see God's heaven. No such thing is taught in this text. Saul was a godless man before he chose to commit suicide. His suicide was incidental to his being a lost soul. Saul feared that they would mutilate his body. Well, he was right. When they found him, it's a grisly chapter. They cut his head off. And they took the rest of his body and somehow pinned it to the wall of a city. Obviously. To say, this is a Philistine message. You ridiculous Israelites are licked. You can't stand against us. And the fact that Saul's head was put in the presence of idol gods, the famous idols of the Philistines, made it all the more a mockery. The epitaph on Saul's tombstone might have read in just a few words, I played the fool. I disobeyed God in matters small and great. I didn't think God's word really mattered. And when I did discover that it mattered, I tried to cover up and saving face meant the most to me of anything. I ignored God's prophet. I allowed jealousy toward a younger man to engulf me, a king. I returned. I turned away from the true God. I consorted with dead spirits rather than God. I played the fool. That's the story of Saul. Repeatedly, King Saul had spit in the face of God. And God departed from him. Finally, irrevocably, disastrously. Now, most people would gloat. The Philistines certainly gloated. 
A man who ran to David in the first chapter of Second Samuel 1 there certainly gloated and thought that he would get a reward from David for coming with the crown of the king that he had found. But you see, the problem was David, for all the things that had been done to him, never did consider Saul to be his enemy. Never put him in that category. He was wronged by Saul in terrible ways, but Scripture never says for all that David suffered, for all the regrets, for the foolish steps that he made and thinking, I better go to the Philistines, there's no other refuge. He still never said, Saul is my enemy. For one reason, because the God of Israel had anointed Saul and put him on the throne. And David saw him as God's anointed, and he would not touch God's anointed. You remember, he had two occasions when he could have easily killed him, and he would not do it. What a difference it makes when you can view a person somehow hostile towards you or or in a bad relationship with you as the creation of God. Because when you can really view somebody that way, you actually can pray for that person. I would think, I'm speculating, but I would think David prayed for Saul. He must have. He must have prayed that this man could realize what God saw when he allowed him to be anointed by Samuel and made a king. You can't pray for an enemy and maintain a deep animosity against that person. Well, Here in a little side plot, I didn't dwell on it even to read the whole text, but you can cast your eyes on 2 Samuel 1 and see how a battlefield scavenger, not an Israelite, had found the king's crown on the battlefield. And he thought, wow, here's my chance for fame and fortune. I'm going to take this to David. He will reward me surely because his enemy Saul is dead. In fact, maybe I'll even tell him that I killed Saul. Well, the man comes, tells his story. It has huge holes in it. David knows that. The problem wasn't that he was lying. The problem was that he was lying about God's anointed. And this spy who sought to use Saul's death for personal enrichment was executed because David saw that as dishonor against the one God had appointed. You see, David's view was that dishonor to God's king was dishonor to God. I'm sure he burned inside to think of the head of Saul on a pike in the temple of Dagon and the Astaroth and the horrible things that those so-called gods represented. David burned with shame for God. Because Jehovah was being mocked. Not only were the Philistines trash-talking Israel in the streets... They were assuming that the true God could not protect his own king. And so God's holy name was being dragged in the dirt, and the shame of it was almost too much to bear. The lesson here is that God makes kings, even bad kings, and only God unmakes a king that he once makes. And there must be times when we see tragic tragic providences happening in national life, our national life, space shuttles exploding, skyscrapers falling, people of goodwill working for benevolent organizations being beheaded. And instead of just sneering, whining, crying, bawling, wondering what is going on here, we should be called like David was to biblical lament 
which means prayer, repentance. God, what is happening? How are we to understand this? Lead us, teach us, show us, humble us what it is we ought to be learning here. I would say to you that, and and I know we will watch this unfold in the next two years, how I would covet that the efforts that many evangelical Christians, some of you aren't going to hear this the right way, how would we covet that the efforts evangelical Christians will pour into party politics and getting our man or our woman elected to the White House, our person, oh, that'll fix everything. Sure it will. If we could pour that same effort into passionate prayer for what's wrong with this country, God would change our land. National acts of tragedy, times of trouble like we live in today in America are times when God calls his people to prayer and lamenting and repentance and seeking his face instead of whining and blame-shifting and secular political scheming. Well, the second major point I have here today goes into 2 Samuel, and I only read a portion of the lyric poem that is here. Just as David, of course, was a psalmist, this is poetry that he composed here. It's a song. It's called, in notes to this passage, the Song of the Bow, probably because, well, it's hard to say. Saul was cut down by archers. It could have to do with that, or it could have to do with the fact of Jonathan's using a bow and being a warrior with a bow. It doesn't matter that we figure that out. But look at the things he says here. Saul and Jonathan in life, they were loved, they were gracious. In death, they were not parted. Oh, how I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were dear to me. Your love for me was more wonderful than that of women. How are the mighty fallen? Here, David shifts from the national lament to a personal lament, mostly for Jonathan. David had lost a friend par excellence, a friend who was to him what John the Baptist was to Jesus. Remember John the Baptist saying, Jesus must increase, I must decrease? That's exactly what Jonathan did. And grief for Jonathan is something we can identify with because when is our grief the most sharp? Of course, when we lose a relative or a very dear friend. It's natural to grieve then. David's reaction to King Saul might have, been, might have seemed to you like an unnatural reaction, not something readily explainable. But reaction to the loss of Jonathan was totally natural. Here were two men that were united in the way that World War II veterans today, as they're still among us in their 80s and 90s, who fought together in places in Europe or the South Pacific. And we've heard the phrase, the band of brothers And if you had any idea what some of these men went through or what any veterans go through, you would understand why, as long as they still can go at age 90 or 93, they're still attending the Battle of the Bulge reunion or the Okinawa reunion. They would not consider it to be a weak or effeminate statement by David when he says, the love I have for this man is greater than that of women. They would understand. We fought as brothers. We fought for each other. 
Here was Jonathan who remained loyal to his father. What a delicate thing he had to balance. Having the great friendship for David and knowing David would be the king, having given David his, his weapons and his, his cloak and so on, signifying, I look to you as the next king. Yet he had to remain in the presence of and work for his father who hated David. What a tightrope Jonathan had to walk. But he walked that godly tightrope. He laid aside a kingdom he couldn't keep to gain an eternal home that he couldn't lose. I say to you, Jonathan may seem to be a bit part character in the Bible. I think he's a man of tremendous honor and calling for great respect. Well, in the time I have here this morning, I want to bring out some practical lessons that we can observe, both from David's national lamentation, mostly centered on Saul, and his personal lamentation, centering on Jonathan. One is this. Grief is a legitimate process for the people of God. Folks of Westminster, we've been doing a lot of grieving, if you haven't noticed it lately. The last two months of this church's life, as far as I can tell, We have never had more deaths in a span of two months as we have had most recently. Some of them tragic, bizarre, some of them very natural from from old age, but there are many families grieving among us. There's a very foolish and harmful idea out there somewhere that Christians, of course, don't grieve like others. The Scripture tells us that, right? We don't grieve like those who have no hope, but somehow people twist that phrase and say, Christians don't grieve. Where did you ever get that idea from? Christians certainly grieve. We just don't grieve like those who collapse upon caskets or, you know, give shrill wailings and copious crying through the streets of the city like we see in the Middle East. And sometimes we say, what is wrong with those people? What's wrong with them is they're sad. They're bereft. And they may express it differently than you or I, but they're doing something that human beings were created to do. They're lamenting. Don't ever be the person who says or even thinks when someone has lost a spouse or a child, aren't they over it yet? Good grief. This isn't minor surgery. This is the biggest event of lives. And we don't get over it quickly. We certainly don't get over it by going into denial and say, I shouldn't be experiencing this. I read somewhere a comment of a man who had lost his daughter in a car accident. And well into his grief, a few years into it, he said, you never completely get over it but you can get through it. Secondly, consider the place that lament or grief or identification with sorrow should have and in fact must have in certain times of our worship. There are times when we're considering a subject like the death of Christ, the passion of Christ as we come into this season of Lent and move closer to the cross. And you know there are those, especially in the contemporary music crowd, who say, hey, be sure you don't sing any songs 
that aren't toe-tapping, emotionally uplifting favorites that create great joy in everybody's countenance. Sorry, but biblical songs, namely the Psalms, have a lot to say about lament. Are you going to tell me I must jettison a grand but solemn song like, O sacred head now wounded? Be still, my soul, in the hour of trial, Jesus plead for me, on and on. The note of lament has a place in our worship, especially when we come to focus on Christ and the amazement we have at what he did on the cross, or when we come ourselves in a low time of defeat or or confusion or pain, and we must sing out of our pain, not simply out of our joy, although joy, of course, is a big part of worship. Thirdly, we must learn from David's songs of lament that there are causes for believers to mourn that are not always just the cause of losing a loved one. There are national times when the nation is in disgrace, when sin is being exalted, when unbelievers seem to have the upper hand and, and uh, have all the, the megaphones handed over to them to speak all the messages that everybody's hearing. When did you last mourn over the cynicism and the unbelief projected in our society day in and day out, including by leaders of our society? When did you last mourn over millions, millions, millions of unreached people who've never heard the name of Jesus Christ? I can never forget the words of Dr. Bob Pierce, who founded the World Vision Organization years ago, when he said, let my heart be broken by all the things that must break the heart of God. If you can't find some of those things in this community, in this country, and this world, you must be living in a snow cave and you've been there for a long time. Finally, I say this. Observe that David's classic song of grief in 2 Samuel 1 is a noble song, a grand song. It celebrates good things but it's incomplete. It's one of those things that looks ahead and cannot be completed in the day that it was written because it has to look beyond this Old Testament text to come to the point of real gospel hope and see Jesus Christ crucified and risen and know that in Him is the completion of hope. In Him is the end of every lament. In Him is joy again after real sorrow. In Christ alone, we are not subject to bondage through the fear of death as we would be if we only had the Old Testament. In Jesus, the second David, and because of him, because he rose, that is why we do not sorrow as those who have no hope. David's lament only anticipated that and pointed to it in a future way. So learn to lament in a way that, yes, is ready to express your sorrow as David did, is ready to respect what is going on in events that that we must be grieved by. But nevertheless, a lament that knows what the Old Testament says, that weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. 
And in the biblical sense, the morning is Easter morning. And the best thing we have to say when we weep for someone whom we lose in this world is not the words of David, how are the mighty fallen? The best thing we can say is thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Father, teach us how to lament. Not that we would go around this world with our faces dragging, with our tears flowing all the time, but that we, like David, would be people who have a principled grief, a grief that is sad for the right reasons, and a grief that knows when it's time to put our handkerchiefs away and rejoice, because our Lord God is the God of Easter, that our Savior Jesus Christ is the risen one, and He is the great descendant of David, completed all Christian lamentation by rising from the dead. Thank you for teaching us these things. For Jesus' sake, amen.